0: Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. As we were singing this morning, I sensed uh, just some tenderness and some compassion in the room as we sang and I want to ask the Lord to continue that so Jesus yeah in a time where it has been very easy for us to get riled up and in many ways legitimately um, I ask that you would also help us to be tender and compassionate uh, to Be just as sensitive to what's on your heart as we are to what's on our heart, our hearts. I ask, Lord, that you would give us the ability to give clear attention to you. And to try to get your heart on what's going on uh, in the world right now so that we can share your heart with others. And I pray that in your name. Amen. All right. Good morning. I want to welcome you uh, to True Vine, whether you're here in person or watching us online. As we acknowledged earlier in the service, it is Father's Day, so really quickly, uh, I just want to say happy Father's Day to my dad. Since we've been streaming these uh, services online, he's watched pretty faithfully. I think he might have better attendance than some of you. So uh, happy Father's Day, Dad. Love you. He watches from North Carolina. And uh, all right, and I'll take his beef jerky uh, on the way out. Okay, <clears throat> so we're going to take a little break this morning from our series uh, on the church in Ephesus and our series through First Timothy to just, I feel like as a church, maybe as a nation, we need to take a deep breath. We need to slow down and reflect. Uh, I, I wish that there was a mechanism in play in our culture or in our society where we could, when necessary, call for a like national day of mourning or grieving. Uh, this week, I think, hasn't every week since about four, week, four months ago been a crazy week? This week, I was just, felt like I was going back and forth like a tennis ball between hope and despair. I either was incredibly hopeful for what Jesus was going to do, or I was on the verge of tears. I mean, I think at any given point this week, I probably could have cried if I'd have let myself just break down. Um, So... I don't know, does anyone else feel that way? <laughs> like you could just cry at any moment. Um, this is not the time in our nation. I, I'm just going to talk specifically about the United States right now, although I recognize that there are things going on all over the world. This is not the time in our nation for people to puff out their chests and act strong. Because the, the whole strong thing is an act. Uh, this, is, this is a time for humility and... Reflection and soul searching, and uh, I think it's a time for returning to God. Um, I thought that the coronavirus <laughs> was enough to cause people to return to God. Apparently, we need more to get our attention. And so, uh, I, this morning, I want to take some time to address everything that's going on in the United States but I'm going to do my best to do that in an apolitical way and in a spiritual way because you know it's 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 fascinating to me that at this point in 2020 we politicize everything I mean the coronavirus somehow got political wearing a mask is political what happened to George Floyd is political and uh it's a, so, if you can politicize everything, then I'm going to go ahead and spiritualize everything. Because it really is all spiritual, even though it's not all political. We're dealing with a situation where, I think many in the church interpret things through politics, but they're not interpret the, interpreting things through the Bible. All of it is spiritual. Everything that we're experiencing, everything that we're going through, and everything that we're going to go through. I mentioned this last week, but... Do you realize that we're only halfway through 2020? That we, I I really, honestly, have you considered that we still have the trial of the officer that that killed George Floyd? We still are going to go through that, hear testimonies, see evidence, and there's going to be a verdict. And I don't know that there is a... There, is a, there isn't a positive experience that's gonna come out of that. And I know that many, many in our nation are still not convinced there's gonna be justice, and so they're anxious about that. So we still have a trial that we're going to go through. Did you know <laughs> there's still an election? And everything that comes with an election. Do you remember what the last two elections were like? You realize we still have debates to sit through? And, and we can hard, we've hardly, hardly handled the last two elections. I don't know what we're going to do to get through these. And, you know, based on the candidates, I'm sure we're going to hear some pretty ridiculous things out of both of their mouths in the next few months. Then there's a, an election that needs to take place potentially during the second wave of the coronavirus. This is what's ahead of us. I, I'm not even sure we've been through everything yet. And so uh, this sermon this morning is a very meager attempt to prepare us um, to not only survive this, but thrive. I, I don't know that I have a lot of advice for the general population of the United States that isn't following Jesus other than to put their hope in Jesus, but I do feel like there's a lot that Scripture has to say for the church, that, that most of what I have today is directed at the church, is followers of Jesus that live in the United States in 2020, and that's us. Um, so I want to illustrate it this way. When I was a kid, I grew up about 100 yards from a crick. You would call it a creek. You guys know what a crick is? Okay, There's going to be a picture of the crick. Uh, that 's actually it that 's French Creek. This is not French Creek that 's down here, like french creek state park it 's a whole totally different creek or crick up in Northwestern Pennsylvania uh, and we grew up about a hundred yards away from it, so like from where i 'm standing to the houses on the other side of the street, we were pretty close to it to the point where when it flooded, it would come into our yard and so, as kids, we would go play in it, we would fish in it. I mean, summer vacation was just going down. Fishing or swimming in the creek. I remember when I was in college, uh, well, when I was in early 20s, I was uh, taking my wife on a hot date to the demolition derby at the county fair. <laughs> Very romantic. This is not a joke. Uh, and the, the electricity went out, and uh, because we had well a well for our water, when there's no electricity, there's no water, and I needed to take a shower, so I went down to the creek and uh, she bathed there with a bar of soap and somehow she still married me. Uh, well, I mean, how could she not? We went to a demolition derby, I mean, at the county fair. So uh, I remember as a kid growing up, we would, we would play in this creek or crick and one of the things we like to do after a rain when, when, it, the, when it was a little stronger is we would, we would like to walk Upstream. Because the water was always pushing against you, and we would like to test out like can you handle it? Can you and we would wear shoes in the crick or the creek. I'm just gonna say crick, okay? That's what's just gonna come naturally out of me. You're gonna have to translate it to creek. We would walk in the crick with shoes on because the, the rocks were all slippery and slimy and we didn't want to fall and get swept away. So we would get and we would have to lean in to the current. You know, we were doing the opposite of going with the flow. We were going against the flow. And it was, I don't know, it was kind of fun, but you were almost tired afterwards. After 30 minutes where every single second is fighting against the flow that things are going, you get tired. Now, there have been times in my walk with Jesus that have felt like I'm going against the flow. There have been times in my walk with Jesus where I feel very much like I'm going with the flow. This is this is what we experience when we go on things like retreats, or when I was a teenager, I would go to like a Christian summer camp. And man, when when I didn't have like chores and worries and anxieties, and when everyone around me was following Jesus, and the you know the biggest problem was uh, we sang too m- too many songs too long. You know, every that really felt like oh it's so easy. I'm just going with the flow. We're all praying. We're all following Jesus. We all want you know God to reign and. It was really easy, but then I would go home to my high school and it would felt like now I'm not going with the flow, I actually am going against the flow. And so if you're like me, those spiritual highs that you try to maintain die off really quickly. And a lot of it has to do with the momentum that you're living in or the current that you're living in. So I feel like right now, following Jesus or faithfulness to Jesus is like going upstream. Like, it's against the flow. There's a lot of pressure that is pushing against us to remain faithful to Jesus right now. There's social pressure, financial pressure, political pressure, spiritual pressure. I just want to remind you, everything that's going on around around us is spiritual, okay? I'm actually borrowing that illustration from a man named Mike Bickle, who talks about what we're going uh, going through in the United States. He talks about it, in terms of going upstream or against the current. And this is what he said, and he said this on April 24th, 2020. This is, uh, we are kind of in uh, the front end of the coronavirus uh, and shutting everything down in the United States. At this point, this is 30 days before George Floyd had been killed. This is 30 days before protests. Uh, This is what he said. It's a little bit of a long quote, but I just want you to follow with me. This is how he said it. This pressure that we're in globally is like the body of Christ swimming against a current that's only one mile an hour trying to push us downstream. We're having to work hard to swim against the current. We're using all of our spiritual muscles, but it's only a one mile an hour current that we're swimming against. Beloved, I want to assure you the days are coming we're going to be swimming against a 10 mile an hour current and a 20 mile an hour current And the Lord is looking at us with tenderness in his heart, and he's saying, many of you are gulping water already. Some of you are drowning already. This is a training and a strengthening season in order to prepare for what's coming. Jeremiah 12, 7 says, if you can't run with the footmen, how will you run with the horses? If we're already exhausted and overwhelmed, where are we going to be when the pressure intensifies? I want to remind you, he said this 30 days before George Floyd was killed. He said, the days are coming where there's going to be violence, economic pressure, natural disasters, famines, droughts, persecution, military violence, civic violence within cities between races, between the people and the government. Now, I don't think he was necessarily prophesying. I think he was just actually teaching us the Bible. It says in Matthew 24 and various other places, this is all coming, You don't even need to ask God to tell you what's coming. He's already said in the Bible that these things are coming. Uh, Tribulations and trials and natural disasters and political upheavals and nations against nations. And the word for nation is actually ethnicity. So ethnicity against ethnicity. These things are coming. These are actually signs. And so this is the point that Mike Bickle's making and it's the point that I want to make today. If we can't handle what has already come, What is the next six months going to look like? And what I want to address today is how we can strengthen ourselves in the Lord to not only survive, but thrive through the rest of 2020. Does that make sense? I mean, because, listen, what has happened has been a lot, but it's one mile an hour compared to what's coming, I believe. And uh, I think many of us do feel like we are drowning already, and and I want to... This is my attempt to strengthen us and prepare us so that we don't get swept away with the current, uh, or the way I would say that if I'm thinking about spiritual warfare is deceived. So I want to look at, uh, I want to compare and contrast three ideas throughout the Bible uh, that are going to help us to understand how we can stay faithful. I'm going to start in the book of Genesis and I'm going to end in the book of Revelation, so get comfortable. Just kidding. Well, I am starting in Genesis and ending in Revelation, but I'm going to skip most of what's in between. But it is helpful. It is helpful for us, though. In a, in a moment like this, we do need to take a step back and get the big picture, right? So we're going to look at the big picture. We're going to start at the beginning of we're Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Like, let's, let's get back to what we're talking about. So this morning, we're going to compare and contrast three things. First, chaos and order. We're going to compare and contrast chaos and order, get a biblical view of chaos and order. Secondly, we're going to compare and contrast zealots and sellouts, zealots and sellouts. And then thirdly, we're going to compare and contrast overcomers and the overwhelmed or overcoming and being overwhelmed. So in Genesis chapter 1, if you want to go there in your Bible, should be toward the front. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, these will be on the screen for you as well. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Let me stop right there. Formless and void sounds so poetic. I want you to think about the earth being formless. When the earth has form, that means that it has shape. It means it has distinction. You can tell the difference between a tree and a rock because they have form. Well, this is formless means there is no difference between tree and rock. It's just this hodgepodge, this soup, this mixture, this primordial ooze, you know, like uh, where there is no distinction yet. So it's formless and it's void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving or hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Now, I could read through the rest of Genesis 1, but it's, it's pretty much the same pattern. God does two different things in order to bring order where there's chaos. He separates or distinguishes, and then he calls or names, all right? So, when it says formless and void, that word in Hebrew means several things. It means confusion, wasteland, wilderness, or the word I want to use today, chaos. God, when he stepped in to create the world, he took something that was absolutely chaotic, just a chaotic mess, and he brought order to it. How did God bring order? Well, there's a couple things God did, and we're not going to look at all of them today, but the two that I want to draw our attention to first is that he made distinctions, In verse 4, it says, God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from darkness. In verse 6, I didn't read this, but God separates the water in the sky from the waters in the ground. In verse 14, he separates day from night. All through Genesis 1, God is going through, and he's making distinctions and separations. Now, I'm not going to try to do my best to, from this point on, not use the word separation because I realize that in our current context that can be misunderstood. It does not mean what people could accuse it of meaning. In this context, I'm talking about making distinctions, distinguishing light from darkness, distinguishing day from night, okay? The second thing that God does is that he identifies, he gives names, he calls. In verse five, he called the light day, And he called the darkness night. God is bringing order to the cosmos here by distinguishing and then identifying what's going on. And he actually gives Adam and Eve that same uh, responsibility on a smaller scale. Once God has created the world by distinguishing and naming, what does he give Adam and Eve the responsibility to do? I want you to take this garden which is orderly, and I want the garden to overtake the wilderness. Adam and Eve lived in a garden that was in the middle of wilderness, and God told them, take the garden, and I want the garden, which is orderly, to overtake the wilderness, which is chaotic. You understand? What's the difference between a garden and a, and a, and a forest? Order, right? And so, God gives him that responsibility, and then he says, and I also want you to assign names to all of the animals. I want you to call them names. And so he, God gives to Adam and Eve essentially the same responsibility that he had, which is to bring order through making distinctions and then also assigning uh, identities or names to them. This is how God brings order, and this is how God uh, has Adam and Eve bring order. 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty three tells us about God's character when it says that God is not a God of confusion, but a God of order. Now, right now, it does seem like there's a lot of chaos, doesn't it? it se- I mean, to me, it seems like there's chaos, there's disorder. <clears throat> it's happening uh, not just in streets, although it is happening in streets. It's also happening in government. It's happening in media, But you know where else it's happening? In homes. It's happening in homes. And if we're gonna fix it, and you know what happens in homes? Because it happens in us. When our heart, when our soul is chaotic, it just bubbles out. And then it leads to chaotic homes, and then chaotic homes lead to chaotic societies, and then chaotic societies lead to chaotic systems, and chaotic governments and chaotic culture, and so there is a sense in which we are personally responsible for this, but then that personal responsibility should, of course, lead to large-scale systemic and social uh, ramifications. Now, I think that what would be helpful for the church in the United States right now is, would be the, the ability to distinguish and name things. So, for instance, We as the church need to be able to distinguish sin from righteousness. Uh, Sorry, yeah, sin from righteousness, that is what I meant to say. We need to be able to distinguish sin from righteousness. There has been for probably the last 15 years a trend for churches to muddy or churches or pastors or whoever, people, To muddy the waters where we're not comfortable calling sin, sin. We call it mistakes or dysfunctions or disease. And that's not to discount that those things are real, but the decisions that we make that don't reflect the character of God are sin. And we can call it sin and we must call it sin and we should call it sin. And we should be able to make a distinction between sin, personal sin, and personal righteousness. When the Bible talks about righteousness, it's talking about the actions of you and I as individuals. We also need to be able to make distinctions between justice and injustice. So when the Bible talks about the actions of a group, not the actions of an individual, it uses the word justice or injustice. Does that make sense? So in the Bible, there's both a personal and a corporate way of being. And, and I feel like in America we're fighting over that right now because when we talk about anything that's corporate, people are like, I'm an individual. Yes, you are an individual. That's biblical, but you know, in the Bible there's also a sense in which you are also part of a corporate group as well. And so uh, these are both things, and we need to be able to make that distinction and call things as they are. We need to be able to distinguish between biblical Christianity and what I would call American civil religion. Civil religion is the vaguely religious things that we insert into our society that have the appearance of religion, but are not in alignment with biblical Christianity. Okay, does that make sense? It's the mixture of patriotism and religion. Now, Don't get me wrong, I am patriotic. I have a little American flag on my book bag that I wear every day. I have been to many, a couple countries. There is nowhere that I would rather live than the United States. I celebrate Fourth of July. I don't apologize uh, for loving where I live because I have been to enough other countries that when I see, when I was in Uganda, I saw Ugandans loving Uganda, praying for their nation, and nothing about that struck me as wrong. When I was in Cuba and I saw Cubans loving Cuba and praying for their nation, nothing about that struck me as wrong. So when I see Americans praying for America, nothing about that is gonna strike me as wrong. You understand? It's good to engage on behalf of your nation in prayer, okay? That being said, when it gets to the point where you think that God favors one nation over another nation, that is civil religion. Where there's kind of a superiority, inferiority dynamic going on, that is civil religion. It shouldn't be pride, it should be humility. Does that make sense? Um, And so... We need to be able to have the ability to distinguish between biblical Christianity and American civil civil religion. You don't need your Christianity to be American-flavored. Okay? Let me just go a little further. You don't need your Christianity to be Republican or Democrat-flavored. Any flavor that you add to it takes away from it. Does that make sense? You, You don't need to flavor your Christianity with your politics. You don't need to flavor your Christianity with other things. Christianity is powerful enough as it is. And when you flavor it with something, it actually takes away from what Christianity truly is. So we need to be able to make those distinctions. We need to be able to distinguish truth from lies as it relates to things like media and the news. We, we We need to be able to make those distinctions and judge between truth and lie. Now, how do we do this? How do we bring order where there's chaos So how did God do it? He did it through creation. God brought order to a chaotic environment through creation. And the way I think that we're going to do it is through creativity. I have been praying this week that God would unleash creativity in the church. What is creativity but bringing order? I mean, if, if someone writes a piece of music, what are they doing? They're simply ordering notes and sounds, right? They're adding some order to it, right? If someone paints a beautiful picture or makes a beautiful piece of art, they're ordering shapes and colors in a way that's appealing, that draws people in. So I've been asking God to release creativity in the church because God brought order to chaos through creation. We should be able to do the same thing. So I'm asking that, that God would re- release creativity in the church in the, in the, in the form of creative music, Creative artistic expression, creative solutions to problems. I mean, I want you guys know who Elon Musk is. He's like the real Tony Stark, you know, Iron Man. He like and whatever you think about Elon Musk, what if the church had a person like that who could solve social problems? You know what like that thought creatively, that 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 understood that like anything is possible with God, and so we can address these social issues and uh, other things creatively and in a way that honors God within what God teaches us in Scripture. Solomon was an example of that in the Old Testament. You read about the wisdom of Solomon, and, and that's what wisdom is in part. Wisdom is creative problem solving. It's bringing the, the, the realities of the kingdom of heaven into the kingdom, kingdoms of man and applying them. So Chaos to order. I want to make sure as you go forward the next six months, you're going to feel moments of chaos. You know what a moment of chaos feels like? It feels like a panic attack. It feels like <gasps> you feel your chest begin to tighten, you, the anger rises, the anxiety spikes, and if you want to shout at someone, that's probably chaos. Okay? But order is clarity. Order is, I can see what's going on here. Order brings peace, even if it's just peace to you and not peace to the larger situation. So I want to encourage you over the next six months as as the mile per hour of the current against us increases, to not let yourself drift into chaos, but to bring order to your own soul. Uh, Or actually, let me say it this way. I don't mean for you to bring order to your own soul. I mean... Come to Jesus so that he can bring order to your soul. Next thing I want to compare and contrast is zealots and sellouts. So we were in Genesis 1. We're going to go to Matthew, the book of Matthew. So we're going to cover now the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 10. This is going to feel probably somewhat subtle, but it's not subtle to the original readers. You guys know that Jesus had 12 disciples, And we often think of those disciples' occupation being as fishermen, right? They would also go down to the creek and they would go fishing, right? We think of his disciples as fishermen because many of them were fishermen, but they weren't all fishermen. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4, Matthew uh, lists for us the identity and some of the occupations of Jesus' disciples. Matthew says, Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, <coughs> and James, the son of Zebedee, and, his brother, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. All right, I want to focus on Matthew and Simon here says in this passage, Matthew was a tax collector and Simon was a zealot. Now, you can just naturally blow by those phrases and not think much of them. But if you understand what's going on to them and at this time, tax collectors and zealots would have been at the complete opposite of the political spectrum. This is interesting to me. So Israel at this point, when this is being written, when Jesus is walking around on the earth, Israel's not like a free nation. It's been taken over by Rome, okay? So they're living under the, someone else's government. Uh, I want you to imagine, I know this is going to be really hard to imagine, but imagine like Canada took over America. You know, they hopped up on their mooses and they rode down and they were like, hey, Hoser, we're under, you're under our control now, Hoser. And they poisoned our water with maple syrup and the air force of geese flew over and took over our cities, right? Right? You can tell how I feel about Canada. Not intimidated. So, but imagine that another country took over the United States and their government began to control us. And they would institute systems and laws. They would probably begin to take taxes from us. Now, how would you feel, some of you might be this person, how would you feel if the Canadian government invaded America, took us over... There'd be probably two types of people. There'd be the sellouts, who would be, who would totally be like, "I'm on Canada's side now. I just, I, you know, I want to be under the protection of their government. Save me." Imagine if one of your neighbors sold out to the Canadian government and became their tax collector, and went to your house, knocked on your door, and said, "It's time to collect your loonies or whatever their money's called. Their loons. They're, they're, you know." Uh, it's time to collect your tax, and you're like, aren't you American? Like, didn't we go to school together? Now you're taking my money and giving it to our overlords, right? So that's what Matthew was. Matthew was a Jewish man, and his Jewish people had been taken over by Rome, and he was collecting taxes for Rome, knocking on their doors, time to pay up, to his own people. He wasn't even Roman, he was Jewish. He sold out, man. He was working for the oppressive government that took them over, a total sellout. You know you know the other group of people we'd have if Canada took us over? There would be the freedom fighters, the zealots, the militia people, you know, the ones that are planning some sort of violent government overthrow, who are, they're going to take those geese out, and they're going to take those mooses out, and they're going to make sure that we teach Canada a lesson, right? Well, there were people like that in the Jewish community. When Rome took them over, they were called zealots, and they were violent. And they wanted to stage a violent overthrow of the Roman government. And some of them would carry knives and daggers on them, and they would go into crowds. If there was a Roman politician... There were were Jewish people at this time that would carry daggers in their cloaks, and if there was a Roman politician, they would get up close to him, stab him, and then walk away, and no one could tell who did it. They were essentially assassins. So Jesus has among his disciples a zealot and a tax collector. This is fascinating to me. It almost would be easier if they were all fishermen, right? Right? Among Jesus' disciples is one person who is totally sold out to the Roman government and another one who wants to overthrow it with violence. And both of them are Jesus' disciples. Now, please don't try to force this into some mold where, oh, well, one of them's clearly a Democrat and one of them's clearly a Republican. That is not the line that they fell on, okay? Democrat, Republican was not a thing for them, okay? So please don't try to force it into that mold. This is a totally different spectrum, but nonetheless, Matthew and Simon are on total opposite ends of the spectrum. Now, I wish that there were some stories in the New Testament that told us how Matthew and Simon uh, the Zealot got along. There aren't any, but uh, if you look at chapter 10, okay, he identifies these uh, disciples in Matthew 10, verses two through four. You do not have to leave that chapter before you get to what I believe is the solution here. Matthew 10 verses 38 and 39. This is how I think Jesus addresses the, oh, you're at this end and I'm at that end and you have this political view and I have that political view. You're a sellout, you're a zealot. This is how I think Jesus deals with this. He says, he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it and he who has lost his life for my sake We'll find it. So this is how Jesus addresses these two people that are on opposite ends of the spectrum. He just says, just die. Just die to yourself. Whatever your identity was before this, whatever your convictions were before this, take up your cross, which is to take up your cross is to bear the burden that is associated with being faithful to Jesus. Take up your cross, lose your life, and follow me. He, what I love about this is that he doesn't convince the zealot to be more like the, the zealot to be more like the sellout. He doesn't convince the sellout to be more like the zealot. He doesn't say, "Oh, let's come, let's come to a place of agreement. Let's can't we all just get along? Let's have unity." He says, "No, you're both just going to have to die to that. You're, bo- you're both going to have to take up your cross and follow me." Understand? Not, not me, Jim. In this position, I'm speaking for Jesus. Okay. I, I, I can't remember. I was trying to recall this story, and I'm going to screw this up, but I, I think you'll remember. There's a story in the Old Testament where there is a, I, I want to say it's Gideon, but I could be wrong. There's a man who is leading the, the army of God in a battle, and an, the angel of the Lord shows up. And the man says to the angel of the Lord, are you for us or are you for them? Are you for my side or are you for the enemy? And the angel of the Lord says, I'm for God. I'm I'm not for your side or that side. I'm for God's side. And if you go against God, he's going to get you. So uh, the zealot is not right. The sellout is not right. Uh, The zealots were a revolutionary group opposed to Roman rule. The tax collectors... We're taking money from Jewish people to give it to the oppressive government. Jesus tells them both to take up their cross, to follow him, to lose their old lives in order to find life in him. Uh, What this sounds like to me is get your identity in Christ. Find your identity in Christ. Before you're anything, you should be Christian, right? And you should be interpreting things through Christian or biblical lenses. Here's something else. This is just a very practical thing that I want to say to our congregation, we are in a chaotic time, and I want us to figure this out together. I want us to do this together. If I can go back to my original illustration of walking upstream and the current pushing against us. You know when it got too, too tough, you know what my brother and I would do? Grab each other's arms. And I kind of feel like that's what the church needs right now. Instead of like, well you go your way and I'll go my way, we actually need to like lock arms If we're gonna walk up the stream and the current's gonna get stronger, we need to do this together. So when everyone else in the world is trying to get you to fight each other, I'm saying we need each other. I'm saying we have to get through this together. Does that make sense? Because you're gonna find that there are gonna be people that disagree with you more and more as time goes on, but here we have a group of people that agree On the important stuff. We might not agree on strategies for accomplishing this or that, which is really all like politics is, just strategies. But we agree that Jesus is Lord, the Bible is true, you know, Jesus is returning. We we agree on these foundational core issues. So uh, I want to compare and contrast zealots and sellouts. Now, finally, I want to talk about Overcomers and the overwhelmed, or overcoming and being overwhelmed. In the book of Revelation, the book begins with John having an encounter with Jesus, and then John writes seven letters to seven different churches. Uh, Actually, I should say Jesus dictates to John seven letters to seven different churches. Each letter, and we're not going to look at every letter, but there's one to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Laodicea. And these seven letters all have similar structures. And in these letters, every single one of them ends with a promise that is given to those that overcome. Now, really quickly, these letters are written to churches that are going through some hard stuff, some hard times. If you can believe it, they're going through a harder time than we are. I mean, they're actually being persecuted, we're just inconvenienced. And I said this a few months ago, and I'm going to say it again. If you want to know how you, you will handle persecution, look at how you handle inconvenience. Because right now we are simply inconvenienced. We're not persecuted, but there will be a day when persecution will come, and it will be increased, and it will be more difficult. I, we can hardly handle inconvenience at this point. Oh, we're out of coffee. Oh, there's nowhere to park. So I went home. Okay, sorry, I'm just, now I'm just getting some stuff out now. Uh, but <laughs> if you can't handle inconvenience, you aren't going to handle persecution. So park your own darn car. All right, that's it. Um, here's what Jesus says to those who overcome in these passages. He says, those who overcome are going to eat from the tree of life. They will not be hurt by the second death. They will be given hidden manna, which is food, a a white stone with a new name that has to do with their identity. They will be given authority over the nations. They will be given white garments. Their name will be put in the book of life. Their name will be confessed before the Father. They will be a pillar in the temple of God, and they will sit down with Jesus on his throne. Talk about being seated with Christ. You actually get to sit on the throne with Jesus, I'm assuming on his lap. We still have more stuff that's going to come, and I want to make sure that we overcome those things and that we are not overcome by them, that we are not overwhelmed by them. When I look at uh, Jesus's return, so i I believe, we believe, Jesus is literally going to return. Not, it's not a metaphor. It's not a poetic image. Jesus is actually going to return because it says in Acts, the same way he went to heaven, up on a cloud, he's coming back. And you know the way that Revelation, Matthew, and other New Testament passages talk about, it seems like it's a literal historical event, not a metaphor. So how do we know when Jesus is going to return? We often look at passages like Matthew 24, which we should, and others that uh, tell us about the signs of the times and things like that. But I want to ask a different question. Not what are the signs, but what is he coming back for? A bride. Without spot or wrinkle or blemish. That One of the signs we should be looking for is not just natural disasters and persecution and deception we should here's a sign we should be looking for cuz this is the sign Jesus has his eyes on the purity of the bride because that's what he's coming back for see all the other stuff that's just consequences of him coming for his bride understand he's not coming back to defeat satan defeating satan is just the consequence of him getting to his bride so Jesus is coming back for a bride without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. Is it possible that the blemishes that Jesus is currently removing right now are not drinking, smoking, and cussing, but racism, legalism, a political spirit, and self-sufficiency? I remember, I remember thinking that Jesus was really, really upset when you said a four-letter word or smoked behind the high school which I never did, dad, all right? But I, I remember thinking those were like the worst sins. And man, we have let some other sins just slip below the radar, haven't we? Self-sufficiency, racism, legalism, elitism. We've just, oh man, if, if only those that discipled me when I was younger had hit on those things instead of rock music and, and, and you know, Things like that. I'm going to paraphrase one of my favorite preachers. When I was hearing about, when I was learning the Bible for the first time, I feel like the story of David and Goliath came up all the time. You know, like, oh, David's fighting this giant, this nine and a half foot tall giant. You're going to do it and you're going to, listen, I have not come across a nine and a half foot tall man who is threatening my family yet. It just hasn't happened. We never got the story about David and Bathsheba. You know what's more relevant to most people? The story of David and Bathsheba, not David and Goliath. Now, we should teach David and Goliath, obviously. But David and Bathsheba is a story of lust and infidelity and sexual promiscuity. I don't know about you, but that seems like way more relevant to the sins going on in the in the church and in the culture than whether you have to fight a tall person. Yeah, I, is anyone here fighting giants? Literal giant people? No? Okay. You seem like you're it's, it's the deer in the headlights right now, those of you that are in the room. Okay, so no one raised their hands. So none of you are doing UFC bouts against 10-foot tall people. That's what I expected. You don't have to raise your hands for this, but anyone ever deal with like sexual sin? Oh. Okay, so I'm assuming you would all have your hands raised. Some of you two hands. Okay. That just seems like more relevant. And so, why am I saying this? I don't even know. I'm saying this because I think that the blemishes that Jesus is working out of the bride right now are probably blemishes we didn't even know we had. Things we've been blind to. uh, Things that we've let slide under the radar. And so, uh, if Jesus is working these blemishes out of us, we should not resist that. We should not say, no, don't touch that. Don't deal with that. I'm not ready to deal with that. When I look at being overcome, uh, sorry, when I look at overcoming or being overwhelmed, <laughs> there's only one option. I mean, When it comes to being faithful to Jesus, In the face of challenges and difficulties and difficult circumstances, what are the other options, guys? It's just overcoming. It's it's either overcome or I guess turn your back on Jesus. I, I don't see a third option. And so when I look at overcoming, I think it's worth it because it's the only option. I mean, this is what Jesus is worth at this point. He's worth our discomfort. He's worth our inconvenience. He's worth even facing persecution. He's worth these challenges that we face. Uh, This is the last thing I'll say as it relates to this before I just share some practical things. When we're dealing with the stuff that's going on around us right now, it's really important for us to not be reactionary, but to be visionary. I'm not trying to sound like a motivational speaker right now, I I just really think this is one of the things God is saying to the church right now, is um, reacting to stuff, if you don't know what the end game is, isn't helpful. I understand being reactionary. I mean, if one of my kids falls down the stairs and says their arm is broken, I don't say, let's not be reactionary. No, I get them to the hospital immediately, right? I react to that, so I... There is a time for reacting. I get that. But if I don't know what the end game is, my reactions may not be productive. So when we're dealing with political issues, social issues, we have to actually have a vision for what God wants the earth to look like. Like what would it look like if the kingdom of heaven came onto earth the way Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? what would that look like? That's the vision that we're supposed to have. If we're driven by things like guilt or revenge, those are reactions that are not visionary. Does that make sense? Guilt, if you're driven by guilt, you're, just gonna, you're gonna do just enough to alleviate your guilt, right? It's, and it actually is more about you feeling better than actually solving a problem. If you're driven by revenge, that's the same thing. It's just about you feeling better than solving a problem. If you're you're driven by anxiety or fear, it it all becomes about alleviating your uncomfortable feelings, right? And it doesn't come about uh, uh, by way of vision and solving uh, a problem or addressing an issue. And so when we're talking about uh, social issues, political issues, biblical issues, family issues, it, it really should be driven by vision. What, what would it look like if heaven came to earth and how do we implement the necessary strategies to achieve that? Now, uh, I, I don't believe it's, it's going to get perfect. My general feeling is things are going to get worse in the world and better in the church. And by better in the church, I don't mean better coffee, better parking, better carpet although we have better carpet now. I mean that while the world gets more divided, the church can get more pure. While the world becomes more chaotic, the church can see more order. I don't expect the world to figure this out. I don't expect things to turn into... uh, heaven on earth until Jesus brings heaven with him but i do know that in the church we can experience renewal revival purity and order this week i want to dedicate more time to this because i think this topic is bigger than i can handle on a sunday morning so this week i'm going to do a couple things and i want to invite you to participate This sermon, the the phrase that's been driving this sermon is how to be a Christian in 2020. (laughs) So one of the things I'm gonna do later this week is I created a YouTube playlist because a lot of you tell me I ask you to read too much, so as I roll my eyes. I created a YouTube playlist of six videos that I have found to be really helpful as we navigate what it means to be a Christian in 2020. I'm going to share this through our church's social media. There are six videos. It's going to, it would take you over five hours to watch them all. I don't expect really anyone to watch all of them, but you can look at them, look at who the speakers are, look at what the topics are. So one of them has to do with how do we, how do we view what's going on uh, in terms of our belief about Jesus' return. One of them is a six minute definition of systemic racism from Tony Evans. One of them has to do with uh, getting ourselves out of like a a obsession with politics. I mean, they all have different emphases and themes. And so you might just watch one video that has to do with something you're interested in. But these are, the reason I'm sharing this is I believe these resources are reliable and helpful. You know, I don't know if this might uh, be a new idea, but not everything on the internet is helpful. Right. So I'm sharing with you resources that I think are helpful, and every, everyone I'm sharing with you believes what we believe. These aren't wackadoo, as my wife would call them, wackadoo, crazy people with bad theology. These are people that have the same theology we have that you can trust that are reliable, okay? So I'm going to share this playlist probably earlier in the week, maybe Monday or Tuesday. And you can just peruse it. You can watch all of it if you want. You can watch one, two. Some of the videos are as short as six minutes. I think the longest one is one hour and 10 minutes. Uh, They cover a variety of topics, but I found them to be helpful in terms of how to think about this. Another thing that I'm gonna do later toward the end of the week is I'm gonna do a Facebook Live in our church's Facebook group called How to Be a Christian on Social Media. And we're going to talk about that. And I'm going to share an, uh, something that I wrote a couple years ago uh, that I think is still helpful, which takes the Sermon on the Mount and applies it to social media. And I'm just going to provide some helpful, practical stuff. Uh, just one thing I'm going to share is you should probably come up with a like definition of purpose for why you have social media. What am I, What do I accomplish through my social media? Is this for keeping up with my family and friends is this for ministry purposes is this for news but I think you might I think we're getting to the point with social media now these days where people need to decide what is its purpose in your life and then and it could be multiple purposes but understand like what am I using this for and what am I not going to use this for does that make sense Because I think the church needs to get to that point. So that's one of the things I'll talk about. Final thing. This sermon is called How to Be a Christian in 2020. I'm going to share a YouTube playlist about how to be a Christian in 2020. I'm going to do a Facebook Live about how to be a Christian on social media. But all of that is pointless without answering this question first. How to be a Christian, period, period. Because if you just listen to a sermon and take some advice and watch a Facebook Live and take some advice and watch a couple YouTube videos and take some advice, that's still not the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. I mean, these are like little practical tips that I think are helpful for us. This is me trying to pastor a congregation. But how how actually does one become a Christian? It's not by behavior, you know, you don't, you don't, Uh, act the right way, and then by default you are a Christian. Being a Christian is actually a faith step. It is a definitive belief that Jesus Christ died on our behalf uh, and purchased salvation for us. I love the way that Paul says it in the book of Romans. He just says that we are uh, justified by faith in Christ. The way that we become a Christian. You can say this so many different ways. Become a Christian. Get saved. Get born again. There, there's so many different ways to say it in the Bible. The way that it's done is by putting our faith in Jesus. What does that look like to put your faith in Jesus? Well, it means you're, you're not putting your faith in other things. You know, what, what, who, who is my provider? Jesus. Who is my healer? Jesus. Who's going to take care of me when things go crazy? Jesus. Ultimately, the question, who is my Savior? Jesus. Jesus is these things to me, and I have faith or trust that he is going to do these things because he is the only one that can do these things. I remember how important this was to me. In 2000, uh, I went to college, and I remember my dad dropped me off. He drove me out to uh, New York, stayed a night, Unpacked, got everything in my dorm and then he went back home and this was the first time I had been this far away from home and alone. And the only person I knew was Kendra and we did not love each other yet at this point. I loved her but she didn't love me. No, just kidding. Neither one of us loved each other very much actually. Uh, I remember being in my dorm room and just like the absolute, utter feeling of disorientation, confusion, chaos, and lostness. I don't know anyone here. I don't know the towns near me. I don't know the roads. All I, honestly, the thought crossed my mind, by, based on the sunrise and the sunset, I know which way is east. If I walk east for five days, I'll get close to home. Like, that thought crossed my mind. If this doesn't work out, I can walk home in five days and make it happen. It was absolutely this feeling of lostness and disorientation, but quickly, quickly I was reminded that Jesus has cared for me and provided for me this entire time, and that I am not... The leader of my own life, but that Jesus is the leader of my life. Jesus is the provider, and it it was quick. I mean, this was like one of those little short, little crises of faith, right? But I realized I am not lost. I am found, and it was it was my faith in Jesus that helped me reorient who I was, where I was, and what I was doing in a moment where I felt absolutely lost and out of place. And so. if you feel disoriented right now, if like what's going on in the world makes you feel disoriented, lost, turned around and upside down, faith in Jesus is the thing that establishes you, roots you, stabilizes you. And uh, that's actually what it means to be a Christian any year and any time of the year. I wanna pray for us and uh, let you guys go home and then celebrate Father's Day, which is the most important day of the year. Jesus, uh, thank you for providing stability and wholeness and healing for us. You're the only one that can do this. We put our trust and our faith in you because you are trustworthy and you're faithful. You're reliable. I ask God that that in a time that feels like swirling and chaos around us, that you would have the church be a pillar of truth. That is our role and our identity, that we would be a pillar of truth, Jesus. That you would give us all deep roots in you, and I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com